Section 4 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 5, Part 1, Derues by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 4 The next day, February 1st, the day he had fixed for the going out of Madame de Lamotte, he caused the chest to be placed on a handcart and carried about ten o'clock in the morning to the workshop of a carpenter of his acquaintance, called Mouchy, who dwelt near the Louvre. The two commissionaries employed had been selected in distant quarters and did not know each other. They were well paid and each presented with a bottle of wine. These men could never be traced. Derues requested the carpenter's wife to allow the chest to remain in the large workshop, saying he had forgotten something at his house and would return to fetch it in three hours. But instead of a few hours he left it for two whole days. Why, one does not know but it may be supposed that he wanted the time to dig a trench in a sort of vault under the staircase leading to the cellar in the rue de la mortellerie whatever the cause the delay might have been fatal and did occasion an unforeseen encounter which nearly betrayed him but of all the actors in this scene he alone knew the real danger he incurred and his coolness never deserted him for a moment the third day as he walked alongside the handcart on which the chest was being conveyed he was accosted at st germain l'auxerrois by a creditor who had obtained a writ of execution against him and at the imperative sign made by this man the porter stopped the creditor attacked derues violently reproaching him for his bad faith and language which was both energetic and uncomplimentary to which the latter replied in as conciliatory a manner as he could assume but it was impossible to silence the enemy, and an increasing crowd of idlers began to assemble round them. "'When will you pay me?' demanded the creditor. "'I have an execution against you. What, what is there in that box? Valuables which you cart away secretly, in order to laugh at my just claims, as you did two years ago?' Derues shuddered all over. He exhausted himself in protestations, but the other, almost beside himself, continued to shout, "'Oh!' he said, turning to the crowd. All these tricks and grimaces and signs of the cross are no good. I must have my money, and as I know what his promises are worth, I will pay myself. Come, you knave, make haste. Tell me what there is in that box. Open it, or I will fetch the police. The crowd was divided between the creditor and debtor, and possibly a free fight would have begun, but the general attention was distracted by the arrival of another spectator. A voice heard above all the tumult caused a score of heads to turn. It was the voice of a woman crying, "'The abominable history of Le Roi de Valine, condemned to death at the age of sixteen for having poisoned his entire family!' Continually crying her wares, the drunken, staggering woman approached the crowd, and striking out right and left with fists and elbows, forced her way to Derues. "'Ah! Ah!' said she, after looking him well over. "'Is it you, my gossip Derues? Have you again a little affair on hand, like the one when you set fire to your shop in the Rue Saint-Victor?' Derues recognized the hawker who had abused him on the threshold of his shop some years previously, and whom he had never seen since. "'Yes, yes,' she continued. "'You had better look at me with your little round cat's eye. Are you going to say you don't know me?' Derues appealed to his creditor. "'You see,' he said, "'to what insults you are exposing me. "'I do not know this woman who abuses me.' "'What? You don't know me? "'You who accused me of being a thief? "'Ah, but luckily the Menefes have been known in Paris "'as honest people for generations. "'While as for you,' 
sir said derues this case contains valuable wine which i am commissioned to sell to-morrow i shall receive the money for it to-morrow in the course of the day i will pay what i owe you but i am waited for now do not in heaven's name detain me longer and thus deprive me of the means of paying at all don't believe him my good man said the hawker lying comes naturally to him always sir i promise on my oath you shall be paid to-morrow you had better trust the word of an honest man rather than the ravings of a drunken woman the creditor still hesitated but another person now spoke in derues favour it was the carpenter mouchy who had inquired the cause of the quarrel for god's sake he exclaimed let the gentleman go on the chest came from my workshop and i know there is wine inside it he told my wife so two days ago will you be surety for me my friend asked derues certainly i will i have not known you for ten years in order to leave you in trouble and refuse to answer for you what the devil are respectable people to be stopped like this in a public place come sir believe his word as i do after some more discussion the porter was at last allowed to proceed with his hand-cart the hawker wanted to interfere but mouchy warned her off and ordered her to be silent ah ah she cried what does it matter to me let him sell his wine if he can i shall not drink any on his premises this is the second time he has found a surety to my knowledge the beggar must have some special secret for encouraging the growth of fools good-bye gossip derues you know i shall be selling your history some day meanwhile the abominable history of le roi de berlin condemned to death at the age of sixteen for having poisoned his entire family whilst she amused the people by her grimaces and grotesque gestures and while mouchy held forth to some of them derues made his escape several times between saint germain lasserois and the rue de la mortellerie he nearly fainted and was obliged to stop while the danger lasted he had had sufficient self-control to confront it coolly but now that he calculated the depth of the abyss which for a moment had opened beneath his feet the dizziness laid hold on him other precautions now became necessary his real name had been mentioned before the commissionaire and the widow masson who owned the cellar only knew him as de coudray he went on in front asked for the keys which till then had been left with her and the chest was got downstairs without any awkward questions only the porter seemed astonished that this supposed wine which was to be sold immediately should be put in such a place and asked if he might come the next day and move it again derues replied that someone was coming for it that very day this question and the disgraceful scene which the man had witnessed made it necessary to get rid of him without letting him see the pit dig under the staircase derues tried to drag the chest toward the hole but all his strength was insufficient to move it he uttered terrible imprecations when he recognized his own weakness, and saw that he would be obliged to bring another stranger, an informer perhaps, into this charnel house, where, as yet nothing betrayed his crime. No sooner escaped from one peril than he encountered another, and already he had to struggle against his own deeds. He measured the length of the trench. It was too short. Derues went out and repaired to the place where he had hired the laborer who had dug it out but he could not find the man whom he had only seen once and whose name he did not know two whole days were spent in this fruitless search 
but on the third, as he was wandering on one of the quays at the time laborers were to be found there, a mason, thinking he was looking for someone, inquired what he wanted. Derues looked well at the man, and concluding from his appearance that he was probably rather simple-minded, asked, "'Would you like to earn a crown of three livres by an easy job?' "'What a question, master!' answered the mason. "'Work is so scarce that I am going back into the country this very evening.' "'Very well. Bring your tools, spade, and pickaxe, and follow me.' They both went down into the cellar and the mason was ordered to dig out the pit till it was five and a half feet deep. While the man worked, Derues sat beside the chest and read. When it was half done, the mason stopped for breath, and, leaning on his spade, inquired why he wanted a trench of such a depth. Derues, who had probably foreseen the question, answered at once, without being disconcerted. "'I want to bury some bottled wine which is contained in this case.' "'Wine?' said the other. "'Ah!' You are laughing at me because you think I look like a fool. I have never yet heard of such a recipe for improving wine. Where do you come from? D'Alençon. Cider drinker. You were brought up in Normandy, that is clear. Well, you can learn from me, Jean-Baptiste de Coudray, a wine-grower of Tours, and a wine-merchant for the last ten years, that new wine, thus buried for a year, acquires the quality and characteristics of the oldest brands. "'It is possible,' said the mason, again taking his spade. "'But all the same, it seems a little odd to me.' When he had finished, Derues asked him to help to drag the chest alongside the trench, so that it might be easier to take out the bottles and arrange them. The mason agreed, but when he moved the chest, the fitted odor which proceeded from it made him draw back, declaring that a smell such as that could not possibly proceed from wine. Derues tried to persuade him that the smell came from the drains under the cellar, the pipe of which could be seen. It appeared to satisfy him, and he again took hold of the chest, but immediately let it go again and said positively that he could not execute Derues' orders, being convinced that the chest must contain a decomposing corpse. Then Derues threw himself at the man's feet and acknowledged that it was the dead body of a woman, who had unfortunately lodged in his house and who had died there suddenly from an unknown malady, and that, dreading lest he should be accused of having murdered her, he had decided to conceal the death and bury her here. The mason listened alarmed at this confidence and not knowing whether to believe it or not derues sobbed and wept at his feet beat his breast and tore out his hair calling on god and the saints as witnesses of his good faith and his innocence he showed the book he was reading while the mason excavated it was the seven penitential psalms how unfortunate i am he cried this woman died in my house i assure you died suddenly before i could call a doctor i was alone I might have been accused, imprisoned, perhaps condemned for a crime I did not commit. Do not ruin me. You leave Paris tonight. You need not be uneasy. No one would know that I employed you, if this unhappy affair should ever be discovered. I do not know your name. I do not wish to know it. And I tell you mine, it is Ducoudray. I give myself up to you, but have some pity. If not for me, yet for my wife and my two little children— for these poor creatures whose only support I am. Seeing that the mason was touched, Derues opened the chest. Look, he said, examine the body of this woman. 
doesn't show any mark of violent death. My God, he continued, joining his hands and in tones of despairing agony, my God, thou who readest all hearts and who knowest my conscience, canst thou not ordain a miracle to save an honest man? Wilt thou not command this dead body to bear witness for me? The mason was stupefied by this flow of language. Unable to restrain his tears, he promised to keep silence, persuaded that Derues was innocent and that appearances only were against him. The latter, moreover, did not neglect other means of persuasion. He handed the mason two gold pieces, and between them they buried the body of Madame de Lamotte. However extraordinary this fact, which might easily be supposed imaginary, may appear, it certainly happened. In the examination at his trial, Derues himself revealed it, repeating the story which had satisfied the mason. He believed that this man had denounced him. He was mistaken for this confidant of his crime, who might have been the first to put justice on his track, never reappeared, and but for Derues' acknowledgment his existence would have remained unknown. This first deed accomplished, another victim was already appointed, trembling at first as to the consequences of his forced confession. Derues waited some days, paying, however, his creditor as promised. He redoubles his demonstrations of piety. He casts a furtive glance on everyone he meets, seeking for some expression of distrust. But no one avoids him, nor points him out with a raised finger, or whispers on seeing him. Everywhere he encounters the customary expression of goodwill. Nothing is changed. Suspicion passes over his head without alighting there. He is reassured and resumes his work. Moreover, had he wished to remain passive, he could not have done so. He was now compelled to follow that fatal law of crime which demands that blood must be effaced with blood, and which is compelled to appeal again to death, in order to stifle the accusing voice already issuing from the tomb. Edouard de Lamotte, loving his mother as much as she loved him, became uneasy at receiving no visits, and was astonished at this sudden indifference. Derues wrote to him as follows. I have at length some good news for you, my dear boy, but you must not tell your mother I have betrayed her secret. She would scold me because she is planning a surprise for you, and the various steps and care necessary in arranging this important matter have caused her absence. You were to know nothing until the eleventh or twelfth of this month, but now that all is settled, I should blame myself if I prolonged the uncertainty in which you have been left, only you must promise me to look as much astonished as possible." Your mother, who only lives for you, is going to present you with the greatest gift a youth of your age can receive, that of liberty. Yes, dear boy, we thought we had discovered that you have very no keen taste for study, and that a secluded life will suit neither your character nor your health. In saying this I utter no reproach, for every man is born with his own decided tastes, and the way to success and happiness is often to allow him to follow these instincts. We have had long discussions on the subject, your mother and I, and we have thought much about your future. She has at last come to a decision, and for the last ten days has been at Versailles, endeavouring to obtain your admission as a royal page. Here is the mystery, this is the reason which has kept her from you, and as she knew you would hear it with delight, she wished to have the pleasure of telling you herself. Therefore, once again, when you see her, which will be very soon, do not let her see I have told you, appear to be greatly surprised. It is true that I am asking you to tell a lie, but it is a very innocent one, 
and its good intention will counteract its sinfulness. May God grant we never have worse upon our consciences. Thus, instead of lessons and the solemn precepts of your tutors, instead of a monotonous school life, you are going to enjoy your liberty, also the pleasures of the court and the world. All that rather alarms me, and I ought to confess that I at first opposed this plan. I begged your mother to reflect, to consider that in this new existence you would run great risk of losing the religious feeling which inspires you, and which I have had the happiness during my sojourn at Buisson Souf of further developing in your mind. I still recall with emotion your fervid and sincere aspirations towards the Creator when you approached the sacred table for the first time, and when kneeling beside you and envying the purity of heart and innocence of soul which appeared to animate your countenance as with a divine radiance, I besought God that, in default of my own virtue, the love for heavenly truth with which I have inspired you might be reckoned to my account. Your piety is my work, Edouard, and I defended it against your mother's plans. But she replied that in every career a man is master of his own good or evil actions. And as I have no authority over you, and friendship only gives me the right to advise, I must give way. If this be your vocation, then follow it. My occupations are so numerous, I have to collect from different sources this hundred thousand livres intended to defray the greater part of the Buisson purchase, that I have not a moment in which to come and see you this week. Spend the time in reflection, and write to me fully what you think about this plan. If, like me, you feel any scruples, you must tell them to your mother, who decidedly wants only to make you happy. Speak to me freely, openly. It is arranged that I am to fetch you on the eleventh of this month, and escort you to Versailles, where Madame de Lamotte will be waiting to receive you with the utmost tenderness. Adieu, dear boy. Write to me. Your father knows nothing as yet. His consent will be asked after your decision. The answer to this letter did not have to be waited for. It was such as Derues expected. The lad accepted joyfully. The answer was, for the murderer, an arranged plea of defence, a proof which, in a given case, might link the present with the past. On the morning of February 11th, Shrove Tuesday, he went to fetch the young de Lamotte from his school, telling the master that he was desired by the youth's mother to conduct him to Versailles. But instead he took him to his own house, saying that he had a letter from Madame de Lamotte asking them not to come till the next day. So they started on Ash Wednesday, Edouard having breakfasted on chocolate. Arrived at Versailles, they stopped at the Fleur-de-Lis Inn, but there the sickness which the boy had complained of during the journey became very serious, and the innkeeper, having young children and believing that he recognized symptoms of smallpox, which just then was ravaging Versailles, refused to receive them, saying he had no vacant room. This might have disconcerted anyone but Derues, but his audacity, activity, and resource seemed to increase with each fresh obstacle. Leaving Edouard in a room on the ground floor, which had no communication with the rest of the inn, he went at once to look for lodgings, and hastily explored the town. After a fruitless search, he found at last, at the junction of the Rue Saint-Honore with that of the Orangerie, a cooper named Martin, who had a furnished room to spare. This he hired at thirty sous per day for himself and his nephew, who had been taken suddenly ill under the name of Beaupré. To avoid being questioned later, he informed the cooper in a few words that he was a doctor, 
that he had come to Versailles in order to place his nephew in one of the officers of the town, that in a few days the latter's mother would arrive to join him in seeing and making application to influential persons about the court, to whom he had letters of introduction. As soon as he had delivered this fable with all the appearance of truth, with which he knew so well how to disguise his falsehoods, he went back to the young de Lamotte, who was already so exhausted that he was hardly able to drag himself as far as the cooper's house. He fainted on arrival and was carried into the hired room, where Derues begged to be left alone with him and only asked for certain beverages, which he told the people how to prepare. Whether it was that the strength of the youth fought against the poison, or that Derues took pleasure in watching the sufferings of his victim, the agony of the poor lad was prolonged until the fourth day. The sickness continuing incessantly, he sent the cooper's wife for a medicine which he prepared and administered himself. It produced terrible pain, and Edouard's cries brought the cooper and his wife upstairs. They represented to Derues that he ought to call in a doctor and consult with him. But he refused decidedly, saying that a doctor hastily fetched might prove to be an ignorant person with whom he could not agree, and that he could not allow one so dear to him to be prescribed for and nursed by anyone but himself. "'I know what the malady is,' he continued, raising his eyes to heaven. "'It is one that has to be concealed rather than acknowledged. Oh, poor youth, whom I love as my own son, if God, touched by my tears and thy suffering, permits me to save thee, thy whole life will be too short for thy blessings and thy gratitude.' And as Madame Martin asked what this malady might be, he answered with hypocritical blushes. "'Do not ask, madame. There are things of which you do not know even the name.' At another time Martin expressed his surprise that the young man's mother had not yet appeared, who, according to Derues, was to have met with him at Versailles. He asked how she could know that they were lodging in his house, and if he should send to meet her at any place where she was likely to arrive. "'His mother,' said Derues, looking compassionately at Edouard, who lay pale, motionless, and as if insensible. "'His mother. He calls for her incessantly. Ah, monsieur, some families are greatly to be pitied. My entreaties prevailed on her to decide on coming hither, but will she keep her promise? Do not ask me to tell you more.' It is too painful to have to accuse a mother of having forgotten her duties in the presence of her son. There are secrets which ought not to be told. Unhappy woman! Edouard moved, extended his arms, and repeated, Mother! Mother! Nehru hastened to his side and took his hands in his as if to warm them. My mother! The youth repeated, Why have I not seen her? She was to have met me. You shall soon see her, dear boy. Only keep quiet. But just now I thought she was dead. Dead? cried Derues. Drive away these sad thoughts. They are caused by the fever only. No, oh no. I heard a secret voice which said, Thy mother is dead. And then I beheld a livid corpse before me. It was she. I knew her well, and she seemed to have suffered so much. Dear boy, your mother is not dead. My God, what terrible chimeras you conjure up. You will see her again, I assure you. 
she has arrived already. Is it not so, madame? He asked, turning toward the Martins, who were both leaning against the foot of the bed and signing to them to support this pious falsehood in order to calm the young man. Did she not arrive and come to his bedside and kiss him while he slept? And she will soon come again. Yes, yes said madame martin wiping her eyes and she begged my husband and me to help your uncle to take great care of you the youth moved again and looking round him with a dazed expression said my uncle you had better go said derues in a whisper to the martins i'm afraid he is delirious again i will prepare a draught which will give him a little rest and sleep adieu then adieu answered madame martin and may heaven bless you for the care you bestow on this poor young man on friday evening violent vomiting appeared to have benefited the sufferer he had rejected most of the poison and had a fairly quiet night but on the saturday morning derues sent the cooper's little girl to buy more medicine which he prepared himself like the first the day was horrible and about six in the evening seeing his victim was at the last gasp he opened a little window overlooking the shop and summoned the cooper, requesting him to go at once for a priest. When the latter arrived, he found Derues in tears, kneeling at the dying boy's bedside, and now, by the light of two tapers placed on a table, flanking the holy water stoop, there began what on one side was an abominable and sacrilegious comedy, a disgraceful parody of that which Christians consider most sacred and most dear. On the other, a pious and consoling ceremony. The cooper and his wife, their eyes bathed in tears, knelt in the middle of the room, murmuring such prayers as they could remember. Derues gave up his place to the priest, but as Edouard did not answer the latter's questions, he approached the bed, and bending over the sufferer exhorted him to confession. "'Dear boy,' he said, "'take courage. Your sufferings here will be counted to you above.' god will weigh them in the scales of his infinite mercy listen to the words of his holy minister cast your sins into his bosom and obtain from him forgiveness for your faults i am in such terrible pain cried edouard water water extinguish the fire which consumes me a violent fit came on succeeded by exhaustion and the death rattle Derues fell on his knees, and the priest administered extreme unction. There was then a moment of absolute silence, more impressive than cries and sobs. The priest collected himself for a moment, crossed himself, and began to pray. Derues also crossed himself and repeated in a low voice, apparently choked by grief, "'Go forth, O Christian soul, from this world. In the name of God the Father Almighty, who created thee, in the name of jesus christ the son of the living god who suffered for thee in the name of the holy ghost who was poured out upon thee the youth struggled in his bed and a convulsive movement agitated his limbs derues continued when thy soul departs from this body may it be admitted to the holy mountain of sion to the heavenly jerusalem to the numerous company of angels, and to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. Mother! My mother! cried Edouard. Derues resumed. 
Let God arise, and let the powers of darkness be dispersed. Let the spirits of evil who reign over the air be put to flight. Let them not dare to attack a soul redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Amen, responded the priest and the Martins. There was another silence, broken only by the stifled sobs of Derues. The priest again crossed himself and took up the prayer. We beseech thee, O beloved and only Son of God, by the merits of thy sacred passion, thy cross and thy death, to deliver this, thy servant, from the pains of hell, and to lead him to that happy place whither thou didst vouchsafe to lead the thief, who with he was bound upon the cross, thou who art God, living and reigning with the Father and the Holy Ghost. Amen, repeated those present. Derues now took up the prayer, and his voice mingled with the dying gasps of the sufferer. And there was a darkness over all the earth. To thee, O Lord, we commend the soul of this thy servant, that, being dead to the world, he may live to thee, and the sins he hath committed through the frailty of his mortal nature. Do thou in thy most merciful goodness forgive and wash away. Amen after which all present sprinkled holy water on the body. When the priest had retired, shown out by Madame Martin, Derues said to her husband, "'This unfortunate young man has died without the consolation of beholding his mother. His last thought was for her. There now remains the last duty, a very painful one to accomplish, but my poor nephew imposed it on me. A few hours ago, feeling that his end was near, he asked me, as a last mark of friendship, not to entrust these final duties to the hands of strangers. While he applied himself to the necessary work in presence of the cooper, who was much affected by the sight of such sincere and profound affliction, Derues added, sighing, I shall always grieve for this dear boy. Alas, that evil living should have caused this early death. When he had finished laying out the body, he threw some little packets into the fire which he professed to have found in the youth's pockets, telling Martin, in order to support this assertion, that they contained drugs suitable to this disgraceful malady. He spent the night in the room with the corpse, as he had done in the case of Madame de Lamotte, and the next day, Sunday, he sent Martin to the parish church of St. Louis to arrange for a funeral of the simplest kind, telling him to fill up the certificate in the name of Beaupre, born at Camercy in Lorraine. He declined himself either to go to the church or to appear at the funeral, saying that his grief was too great. Martin, returning from the funeral, found him engaged in prayer. Derues gave him the dead youth's clothes and departed, leaving some money to be given to the poor of the parish, and for masses to be said for the repose of the soul of the dead. He arrived at home in the evening, found his wife entertaining some friends, and told them he had just come from Chartres, where he had been summoned on business. Everyone noticed his unusual air of satisfaction, and he sang several songs during supper. End of section 4. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.